right. <clears throat> Sorry. Excuse me for that. How's everybody doing today? I hope uh, I hope your week's been a good one, and I hope that uh, I hope your weekend's going to be a good one. So um, let's get to the questions. Um, number one: At what point in time does the Treasury's increased stake in preferred stock from retained earnings eat all the common share value and begin to take away from the junior preferreds? I don't. <clears throat> I don't. I don't see that happening, um, eating all the common share value. Uh, so I think it's $36 billion overpayment we have, right? We've paid the government. If we go back to the original 10% dividend and we assume from day one that um, that was the interest in principle, uh, the GSEs have paid $36 billion more than what they would have paid if they had paid them back, the been, been able to pay back the senior preferred stock plus the dividends, okay? So it's a $36 billion overpayment. The two, you know, Fannie Mae generates about $12 billion bucks a year in profits, and that $12 billion is going to be added to liquidation preference of the stock. So even if it goes a full year or two, <clears throat> um, I don't believe that they're going to even eat into the overpayment much less than begin to eat into more common share, you know, so the common share is worthless. Um, you know, the, the assumption, and this is an assumption, is that that $36 billion is going to somehow be credited to the GSEs uh, towards our necessary liquidity, right, their capital buffers. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that happens. The government may say, you know, in, in consideration of us, um, you know, uh, getting rid of the senior preferred stock and there's going to be a continued uh, backstop of the government until the capital levels are raised, that they're just going to keep the $36 billion. And that that's not going to be put in the capital buffers. And if that's true, then there's going to be more dilution in the common. So, you know, there's a bunch of scenarios. But I don't, I don't think that all the common value is going to be eaten away by this. Um, again, now if this goes on for, you know, if this drags on for two or three more years, then, you know, you're talking some considerable damage to the common. Uh, but I would imagine if that looked like it was going to be the case, I think most people would be out of the common anyway. So I think, I don't think it's going to be one of those things where you wake up one morning and you find it out it's going to be a slow, gradual, um, slow, gradual thing. And honestly, I think if, I mean, if this drags out to the election next year without significant progress uh, and the Democrats win the election next year, then it's who knows what's going to happen. Uh, you know, Mnuchin's gone. Calabria probably is gone. Who knows? Um, and if that's the case, then whatever, whoever comes in behind them is going to be doing away. We have no idea who that's going to be. So you can't make any sort of guesstimates. Um, as to what's going to happen there. So that's that's a complete and total wild card. Um, second question. Again, regarding Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, could you please comment on the recent view from Bovegi, SC scam, net worth sweeper minis in play after accounting chicanery? Also, could you please comment on today's blog from Elizabeth Dexheimer, GSEs, who might need as long as 18 months to build capital. Um, Calabria says companies may have to operate under consent decrees with the government because they might reach a point where they have sufficient capital to exit conservatorships but not enough to adhere to FHFA requirements. 
FHFA hopes to have a hire, hopes to have hired a financial advisor to offer expertise on Fannie and Freddie by the end of November, if not sooner, he says. All these are very positive. Am I right? Um, well, no, because as I said last week, um, the net worth sweep really wasn't ended, right? It was just, and I don't, I wouldn't call it accounting chicanery either. I wouldn't go that far with it. Um, you know, they're just taking cash or taking more stock. So again, that is still allowing the GSEs to rebuild capital, right? Um, what it does mean though, is that depending how this is all handled at the end, there may just be more dilution or more, or more dilution of the common shares to raise the money that they need. So, you know, it's, they are building capital and they are going to, it all is going to be more painful for common shareholders as this, if this process drags out, um, because obviously there'd be more dilution of the common shareholders to raise the excess capital as an overpayment we just talked about is eaten into. So in one way it's good in one way it's bad, but it's not all bad. Um, GSEs might be as long as 18 months. I, I think that's, I don't think that's really news. I think that's kind of in the ballpark about what people were thinking. Um, you know, I heard people saying two, three years. Um, but, you know, I think if you're talking 18 months to build sufficient capital to um, adhere to FHA, FHA, FHFA's requirements, then you got to back up and say six to nine months probably before they build capital or six months to a year before they build enough capital to exit conservatorship with the, um, uh, with the consent decree from the government. So again, that's, those are timeframes and those, are, those aren't bad timeframes. If you're looking at exiting conservatorship in about a year completely, that's not awful. Right, um, and that's even if they just IPO one or partial IPO. I mean, again, the stocks and the preferred stocks are going to react well before this, because whatever they're going to be doing, they're going to have to come up with a plan beforehand. Because before they can raise a dime of capital, they have to have a plan. And when the plan's announced, you're going to everyone's going to figure out how the how the preferreds are going to be treated, how the commons going to be treated, how the conversion is going to be treated, if there is going to be a conversion, what the lawsuits are going to happen to. So before before they raise a dime. They're going to have to have all these questions answered. And then you'll be able to put some decent, not, um, not decent, some moderately, um, I'm trying to word this the right way, come up with some sort of expectations for how things are going to be valued and have a, a, a decent idea because you'll have some sort of a framework uh, and you'll, you'll be able to come up with a range. Um, of expectations, of expected outcomes. You know, they're going to be all over the place because different people are going to interpret things different ways. But, you know, right now, you know, it's, it's all just guesswork. And I've been saying that from day one. And, you know, even the assumption that the uh, junior preferreds are going to be converted to common is, is a guess, is an assumption. We don't know that it's going to happen. Um, nothing has been said that's going to do that. But, it makes logical sense to do that. Maybe they decide to keep them outstanding. I, I don't know what they're going to do. So there's a lot of potential outcomes that could happen. Um, 
as far as far as the, the very the, the the part the part that is positive is the um, exiting conservatorship, but having the consent decrees. That that's very positive because that does mean that they're expediting the timeline to let them not access conservatorship, and that's that's good. That's very good. So it's it's nice to say that he's not going to wi- force them to stay until uh, they have the FHFA requirement that they'll have enough with a backstop to get out and operate independently, and that's good news. Um, the government made a conscious decision to alter instead of stop the network sweep. Why do you think that was the case? I'm assuming they will eventually eliminate the senior preferred liquidation preference, but given that they've taken a different approach at this point, what do you think is a sequence of events that will ultimately result in declaring the senior preferreds paid in full? I'm a new subscriber, just sort of stumbled on your work. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, number one. Um, number two, I don't, I, I don't know why they did what they did um, and just didn't come out and plan out stop it. Um, you know, there was no indication of why they would do that or what they would do. In, in some ways, it makes it a little tougher for them to raise. I mean, at, ultimately, at the end of the day, right, the government needs to raise the money. The, the, the institutions need to raise the money. But the government wants to get them out. So by increased liquidation preference, it does make it a little harder to raise money because it does make more money, have more money to be raised. Um, and in the same way, the government's the largest shareholder, right? When they exercise the warrants, which they will, um, they're also the largest shareholder. So they also, in some ways, that also kind of um, hurts themselves. So I think... I don't. I, I. I. I can't figure it out why they did it the way they did it. It, it doesn't make sense to me. It seems, in one way, enriches the government. In one way, it's self defeating for the government. So it's kind of like a, a tie in hockey. <laughs> it, you know what it's like? It's. It's like. It's like having a three one lead in the third period in a hockey game, ending up with a tie. Yeah, you didn't lose, but Jesus, it doesn't feel great. And that's that's the feeling that it leaves you with, right? You didn't lose, but. You know, you're, you're expecting to win, and you kind of got this whatever in the middle, and it just feels like, you know, it just doesn't feel great. So, um, I think, I don't think we'll hear about the senior preferreds being paid in full until the FHFA's financial advisors come through. And I'm also hearing that it should be any day now we hear that Fannie Mae, the institutions themselves, are going to hire somebody. Um, they don't have, you know, because FHFA is the government, FHA has to put everything out to bid. You know, they have this whole dog and pony show before they pick the person who they're going to hire anyway, right? But they just have to go through this, you know, song, song and dance kind of thing. Whereas the GSEs are claiming they're still publicly traded, that they don't have to go out the bid process. They can hire whoever they want. You know, I, I agree with that assessment. Um, now, they are in conservatorship, so it is a little tricky, tricky. So, you know, I don't, I don't know the legalities that much um, to be able to say one way or another. Um, but all these steps are good news. You don't hire a financial advisor unless you're going to raise money. Right. I mean, so FHA is clearly we're we're clearly going down the path we expected to go in. 
Um, we're just doing it step by step instead of, I think, what we all thought was going to be a global resolution or a singular press conference or, or statement where they say, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be, you know, we're altering the net worth so we let them retain earnings. You know, then the next step is, this is who we've hired. And then it's going to be, this is what they propose. And, you know, and it's not going to take forever because whoever they hire already has a plan. You know, there's nobody, there's nobody right now applying to be the financial advisor for FHFA to get that conservatorship that woke up last week and said, hey, you know what, let's apply for this. Let's start getting a plan together. Whoever is applying for this job has been working on this thing for probably years and has a plan ready to go. So whoever they hire is going to, in short order, present something to FHFA that this is what we should do. Now, obviously, there may be some, you know, information that they'll be given or financials that they'll be privy to that they're not privy to now. Um, that may alter that a little bit or cause some reworking of some things, but you know, we're not starting from scratch. So I don't think it's going to take very long for some sort of plan to come out. Um, some sort of, this is what we're looking to do, or this is the basic structure of how we're going to do this. So, you know, I wouldn't imagine that'd be long. If, if, if they hire someone end of November, I, I don't even, I, I'd be shocked if it took that long. I, I think it'll be early, end of October, early November. I know I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, see something start coming out in December or January as far as what they're thinking about doing. I mean, they are on a clock. They are on an election clock. And if last year, I mean, if, last, if the last president's election proves anything, no one knows what the outcome's going to be. Um, no one knew what the outcome's going to be on election night until, you know, 9 or 10 o'clock. Uh, so certainly nobody knows a year ahead of time right now uh, what's going to happen in the election. So they need to operate under the assumption, and I'm assuming they are, that they're not going to be there after next November. And that whatever they need to do needs to be done before then or substantially done before then in order to avoid um, everything they've done just being kind of wiped away. They certainly have to have a modern conservatorship before next November. Because if they're not, and they lose the election, the next guy comes in and says, you know what, I'm pretty happy with this perpetual conservatorship, it works well, then that's it. They're not coming out. They can sue to come out, but that's another two or three years away, another election cycle probably. So, you know, if they want them out of conservatorship, that has to be done by the, before the election. Which means you have to have some money raised. You have to have a plan to raise. You have to, they have to be in some shape or form have enough capital to exit conservatorship, even if they don't have enough to satisfy the FHFA. So this has to be done, which means the capital raising process and the roadshows need to start in January, right? That's the, that's the kind of the time frame you look at. Start in January, you got 10 months to get it done or to get it done to some degree where the person coming behind you can't then reverse it all. So... Um, I think that was about roundabout way to answer it. What do you think of PG&E, ticker PCG? Given all the headlines of PG&E and the latest and favorable bank bankruptcy court ruling, its stock plunged 30% on 10-10-2019. Looks like a binary investment. Could it be another GGP? I, I, no, I do, I do not think so, not at all. So he, here's the difference. So PG&E right now is on bankruptcy because they have unknown liabilities. 
based on the fire. They also have, I think, $800 million in upgrades they didn't do that they're not having to do. Um, and so that has a lot of uncertainty in the stock. GGP had certain liabilities. We knew what they owed on those malls. We also knew that it was non-recourse debt, meaning if, you know, if I had a million-dollar loan, if I was a bank and I lent, G I'm just making up numbers here, if I had a bank and lent GGP a million dollars and that's what they owed me and the mall, because of price declines, is only worth $800,000 right now, maybe $700,000, $700,000, that mall was all I could get. I couldn't attach any other asset is what I'm trying to say, right? Which is what people thought was going to happen. They had liabilities of, um, again, this is years old, so I think it was liabilities of $32 billion and uh, they had assets of $28 billion, and people said the assets were only worth $18 billion. So they were done. Shareholders were done. But what they didn't do, and it was just laziness on their part, they didn't look and say, well, yeah, but that $32 billion can't go after the other assets. It can only take the asset that that loan is guaranteed on. And then what happens to the banks in 2009 instead of, keeping the loan or refinancing the loan if they then took that property, right? What happens to foreclosed property the second it, the bank forecloses on it? It's, 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 it's property value drops about 30, 40%. Well, don't forget we were marked to market in March 2009 when GGP declared bankruptcy. Mark to market said if, if this A mall is worth 40% less because we're going to have to sell it, Right, because the bank isn't going to run the mall. The bank, but the bank's first thing to do with them was auction the mall. Right? Bank of America is not a, not a, not a REIT, so they got to sell it to somebody who's not going to who in two thousand nine was not going to pay anywhere near full price for it. Once that mall sells for thirty forty percent below its true value, what happens to mark to mark world? Every mall you own, that's an A mall, then drops in value. Well, the bank's ready to book another $100 billion in losses on those loans, right? Because you, you had to value every asset. And a loan on a bank, that's for a million-dollar loan, and a bank that's worth six hundred grand now, that's a $400,000 loss on that loan. So it's like that old saying, you know, if you owe the bank $1,000, you got a problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, the bank's got a problem. That's what it was. So the banks, they went to court, and they tried to, get past the um, non-recourse debt. But of course it was, you know, the, the courts rejected them instantly. So what happened then? The banks started refinancing. And once the banks refinanced the loans, guess what? Magically, GGP was no longer in Chapter 11, the stock had value. There's nothing like that in, in the um, PG&E scenario. They have unknown liabilities right now. We don't know what these lawsuits are going to bring. We don't know what the punishments from the feds are going to bring. We know they have to make almost a billion dollars in upgrades to their, their, um, their uh, power lines and power transmission systems. And I'm thinking that we're going to find out that that's just probably the, the beginning of what they have to do. Not the end of it. So... With having those unknown liabilities, uh, we can't compare it, I don't think, in any way uh, to a GGP scenario. Now, 
Could it end up like that? Well, yeah, it could. But there was, uh, there was a, lot of, a lot of certainty in the GGP scenario. Uh, there's great uncertainty here. So I think, you know, as, as I think you're more likely in this scenario to not make any money or lose a lot than you are to make, you know, what, our, what GGP, we made like, what, 40 times, 30 times our money? Um, I think that that's what's going to happen in this scenario in PG&E. There's just too much, too much outstanding that we don't know. Um, it seems like even though, next question, sorry. It seems like even though IIPR continues to grow its footprint, its stock price continues to drop significantly nowadays. Why does it happen? Currently, 50% cap rates are very high. Do you think it will last if competitors are coming? The basic business model is IIPR buys up warehouse space and rents it to tenants for the, for the cultivation of medical cannabis. Some of these transactions are sale leaseback, where they acquire the warehouse from the tenant. Overall, the purchase price per square foot of their properties is $230 to $300 square foot, quite higher than traditional warehouse space. If tenant go, un, go under due financial, if tenant goes under due to financial or legal regulatory reasons, IIPR's rental income might suffer. This poses significant risk going forward. In addition, IIPR's multiple stock price FFO per share is uh, he equates it at 44, which is substantially higher than industrial REIT peers 20, 20 times. Therefore, stock is overvalued even though its long-term growth rate is significant. Okay, so a couple of things here. It's not a 50% current cap rate. It's, it's a, right now, it's a 50% return on their um, investment. Okay. Um, do you think it will last if competitors are coming? Well, I mean, clearly, if there is competition that does come, um, and right now there isn't, um, and it, you know, it's, it's been a couple of years since they went public, uh, then there would be competition in the space, and that would squeeze margins. It usually does. Um, so I guess the short answer is yes, but there's none out there yet. So I guess that's where we are. Um, Purchase price per square for the properties is quite higher than traditional warehouse space. Well, that's because it's not a traditional warehouse. So I don't, if you've ever been, and I've, I've actually been inside a medical marijuana grow facility, um, it's, it's not what you think it is. Uh, it's not an empty warehouse with some lights and pot plants going over the place. It more resembles a pharmaceutical lab um, because you're talking medical cannabis, not recreational. And it has to be controlled and it has to be sterile. And you can't have, you know, uh, you can't have um, pollutants in it. So if you walk into one of those things, you put on the white suit, you cover your shoes, and you wear the, the head thing with the clear face mask shield on it, and then you walk and you get the air shower, and then you're able to go in the facility. Um, you know, you have to wash everything up. And it's, 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 it, to describe it as what they do is getting warehouse spaces vastly... Um, is vastly underestimates the amount of technology that goes into this. Um, plants are grown under sterile conditions. Um, you know, it's 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 not <clears throat> it's not what people think it is. It's 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 a laboratory. It's it is a medical laboratory. It's a pharmaceutical laboratory. That's what these these places are. Uh, they're, they're amazing. They're, it's quite impressive to see actually what's done there. And, you know, everything, all the. You know, if they're making oils, if they're making edibles, whatever they're making, are all done under completely and totally sanitary conditions. Um, 
Um, so yes, they, they, they are paying more for this space because the space is that much more valuable. Um, um, if a tenant goes under the financial legal regulatory reasons, IAPR's rental income might suffer. Uh, I think it would be short-term. I don't, I don't feel that there would be a lack of people willing to lease out a, a ready-to-go building for medical cannabis. Uh, I think there's plenty of medical cannabis growers who would happily, uh, if someone goes under for whatever reason, uh, jump into this space. I think the likelihoods, likelihood of, of a medical cannabis grower um, at this point going under are very, very slim. Um, and the reason is that there is a shortage of medical cannabis in a lot of, sp- lot of states. They can't satisfy the demand they have. Um, so it's, it, would, it would have to be a stunningly stupid business decision on someone's part to do something to have them go under or have them not make it or, you know, you know, I, you know it would just be something so, you know, I, I had, the best way I described it right now is that in the cannabis space, you know, morons can be millionaires right now. That's going to change, obviously, as more advanced players get into the space and, as, and there's more saturation of the space. Um, then it'll be the people who run the best businesses uh, as far as the retail side are going to make the money and the people who are bad business people are going to suffer. Um, but because there are so few people in it right now and the demand is so great, everyone's doing great. That being said, on the medical side, I'm not talking recreational, I'm talking medical side, which is what they're leasing to. Okay, they're, Some of their clients have the option to grow uh, recreational in their warehouses, but none of them are. They're all growing medical. And I, I don't see a likely scenario where medical growers start going under. Legalization is growing. Legalization is growing across the country. Um, every single poll you see about the consumers and the public uh, I think last time I saw was 90% said it should be legalized medically. I think recreational is around 50-60%. But medical is 9 out of 10 people say it should be legalized medically. We're finding more and more uses for it. More and more, um, we're getting more and more drugs approved that are based on medical cannabis. So the demand for it is growing exponent, exp- exponentially. While the production of it is trying to catch up. And when you have those sort of economics, uh, people don't go out of business. They just don't. The, 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 the tailwind is too strong behind them for the growers. We have the FDA um, slamming justice. It was a week ago, two weeks ago. Because they can't research it here. All the research is done to be done out of the U.S. They can't research it here because it's still Schedule One, and it's still federally illegal. Once that ha- once once that is removed, and the FDA can study it, well, now there's another massive wave of demand coming because the FDA is gonna they'll be buying millions of pounds to study. The efficacy of it and what, what can be done with it, stuff like that. 
Other countries are studying it. Other countries are doing work on it. Fantastic stuff on it. But the U.S. isn't because of that. And the FDA's pissed. And they want it reclassified. And they want it taken care of so they can do their own studies on it. So um, while you know, one can never say no, that you know, that's not going to happen, if a particular grower in Michigan screwed something up so badly and went under, I, there's no doubt in my mind there'd be someone really to fill the void in a very short time right behind them. And, you know, it's a medical grow facility. So, you know, it's going to be all set up to go. Someone's going to walk right in, take it over and go with it. It's, it's, not, it's not a question of, you know, it's not like, you know, a Sears location going under. Hold on one second, take a drink of water. It's not like a situation of a Sears location going under and the landlord sitting on this massive department store trying to figure out who he's going to put in there. No, he's always got to chop it up into smaller stores and lease all those out, and it's going to take six, eight months to do it. it. It won't be that kind of a situation. There'll be a line of people waiting to take that over. So, And then um, multiple stock price to FFO per share is 44, which is higher than industrial repairs of 20. It's true, but it's also growing, right? It's growing 100% year over year. And their counterparties aren't doing that. And I think you could actually make the argument that it's based on its growth. And it, it's growth that it's growth that's not, it's not going to slow down next year. They've gone, we, we invested in this last August. Not this August, last August. They had eight properties. They have four times that now. They have 32. And they've invested more money this year than they did last year. Which means there's more stuff coming on the board, books for next year. They did two huge stock offerings to raise cash. All that cash is getting invested. They didn't, they didn't do that to sit on it. They did it to invest it. So they're, 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 they've, grown, they've grown the store print four times. They've invested more money in the last eight months than they have combined. And they still have a bunch on the books to invest. And they, they, it's just, there's more growth coming. I mean, if you think about it this way, you know, we're going to be getting probably sometime mid next year, we'll make it 8, 10% just on the dividend, on our invested capital, given current growth rates. I mean, that's, that's great. And yes, the price, is, the price has fallen. But let's be honest. December 31st last year, it was 38 bucks a share, a share and change. If I had told you then that, you know what, guys, by next October, this thing's going to be worth 70, 75 to 80 bucks. And it was here at this point, you'd be thrilled. I mean, really, you'd be doing backflips. But because it was higher than that and fell down, everyone's like, oh, man, what's going on? It just keeps falling, da 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 well, I mean, that's what happens in investing, right? Nothing goes up in a straight line. 
Every stock we've owned that's been a big winner. Look at every single one of them. They've had drawbacks, 20, 30, 30, 40%. GGP, when the Hovdi came out with that short, with that short report, it fell 30% in a day. You remember that? That was like right around the end of the year. It was late December that one year. Either that or early January. He comes out with this report. Actually, no, it was late December because part of the reason I slammed him was that he released support right around the end of the year booking some gains on the short of it. Of course, he was wrong. But, you know, it happens. You know, and, 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 and that's part of the... The mental part of investing that's really hard. You know, Amazon has had massive, massive drawdowns. Apple has, Microsoft, every every company goes through times where this happens. Now, if the drawback corresponds to deteriorating operating performance and deteriorating financials, well, that's one thing. But if there's a drawback in the stock price and the operating performance is not only doing well, but basically doubling year over year, well, then that's an entirely different story, right? So, you know, someone would say, you know, hey, this is, this is a good little uh, opportunity to get in it, right? This thing's growing 100% year over year. Might do it again next year. This is cheap. You know, I think part of the fear is Two things. Number one, people are afraid they're going to do another offering and further dilute. Number two is people are afraid, you know, that the banking act, the banks are going to come in and start lending. And I can guarantee you, uh, I can't guarantee. I, I can make a very strong case that even if the SAFE Act comes in, the big banks aren't going to get in the pot overnight. They're not going to do it. Because it's still federally illegal. They can say all they want about federal protections for banks and letting banks lend and stuff like that. But banks are super, super conservative when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, I think your local credit unions might dip their toes in the water. Maybe your small, you know, locally owned banks in each state might step in. But I don't see Citi, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan... Say, hey, we're going to lend $100 billion to the cannabis sector this year. I just don't see it happening. And I don't see banks lending money to these people to build grow facilities. Because I guarantee you Fannie and Freddie aren't going to buy the loans. So that limits what these small local banks can do. So I don't think just that the, the other, so that's the other thing is the, the people think more competition is coming from the banks. I don't see it, to be honest with you. I think the main beneficiary of the SAFE Act and the main reason that they're doing it is so MasterCard, Visa, and American Express will take cannabis transactions. So it stops becoming a cash business. They're well aware of the millions of dollars of tax revenue tens of millions, hundreds of millions nationally of tax revenue they're missing out on because this is still a cash business. So my take on the SAFE Act, and again, it, it could 
changed materially before it goes through the Senate and Trump signs it, is that this is all about credit cards. It's not about financing growth facilities or financing uh, you know, a $4 million investment to start a dispensary. It's not about that. It's about credit cards and letting banks take these people's deposits. That's it. So I, I'm not anticipating much. Um, the safe act will just remove some friction in the system. I'm not anticipating a surge in competition for IIPR um, based on what they're doing. And you have to remember, Gold, the CEO, uh, he, he started and ran Biomed. What was Biomed? Biomed was a specialty REIT focused on the um, pharmaceutical space. And they did amazing. I think they did seven times their money in, in eight or nine years when they were bought out. And go back to that REIT. Well, that was a REIT that was operating in an entirely legal system, right? Pharmaceutical production of pharmaceuticals, all this stuff, completely legal for, for decades. And they had plenty of competition. Any REIT could do it. Any bank could do it. And they still did amazing. So given IIPR has no competition, I'm not expecting any anytime soon. Um, you know, Blackstone raised $20 billion for the real estate space, and they're not going into the cannabis that I've heard. So, I mean, I, it's just not out there. There are some private REITs that do this, but they have nowhere near the uh, financial ability that IIPR does. Nowhere near. And they're, they're you know, you know, they're insignificant compared to what IIPR can do and is doing and has the ability to raise even more money to do. So, you know, I, I think it's valuation, while high, given the economics of the business, given the growth trajectory, and given what they have already in their wheelhouse that they're working on, I think is, is more than fair. And I think it's going to go higher. I think prices are going to go much higher over time, much higher. You know, there is, there is a scenario where once the SAFE Act is passed, IIPR, instead of issuing stock trades capital, that they're able to go access debt markets because they don't touch the plant. And that's, that's, a, that's a major, in the cannabis space, that is a, that is, that is a differentiator. Do you touch the plant or not? And IIPR does not touch the plant. So that may enable them to access debt markets once once it's passed. And now the dilution stops, the capital's raised, the growth continues, boom. So, I mean, I'm very, I'm still very, very, very positive on it. Um, I don't have any, you know, hesitation at all about it, so... The last question is <laughs> the the last question. Well, let me check the emails quick and make sure see if I got any because I always get a couple late questions. Um, yep, here we go. 
Any questions on the fourth? Four, I already answered that on what's going to happen next. So, All right, so then the last question was a funny one. Um, it was just a single word, oil, with a question mark. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, <clears throat> sorry. There was another attack in the Gulf. This time it was an Iranian tanker that was hit. Um, we don't know who yet. Uh, we don't know why yet. Um, but it's clear that, um, it's clear that tensions in the, that area of the world are not ebbing. They're not waning that if anything, they're steadily increasing. You know, we've gone from, you know, seizing a tanker here or there to now we have drones blowing up production facilities in Saudi Arabia. Now we have an Iranian tanker hit today. Um, there were reports that it was in flames, spilling oil onto the this, the the Iranian port. Um, Iran's come out and said that's not true, but I mean I don't, you don't know who to believe in that area. Uh, they've they issued pictures of the boat, but the way the pictures were done, it's not clear that that was actually the ship. So it's you know again, it's you got to kind of take everything. Um, that comes out of there with a grain of salt, other than the fact that it was actually hit. You know, should they decide to blame Saudi Arabia for it? Well, then now we have a problem. Um, Saudi Arabia is not going to respond kindly to that. Should Iran believe it's Saudi Arabia and believe it's in retaliation of what happened to Saudi refinery, then Iran may decide to retaliate. And that's not going to be good. Price of oil is going to go sky high. If those two countries start going at it, you know, they could close the strait. And that means oil is going to skyrocket. And no matter what anybody says, you know, the frackers just can't. There's this perception that fracking oil and the frackers is like a spigot, that they just go in and turn the spigot on and more oil comes out. That's not how it works. Um, we are producing at full bore. I mean, these guys are balls to the wall producing oil. It's not like there's a million barrels a day in spare capacity laying around that are just holding off the market because they don't want to, the price to fall. That's not the case. So we can't make up. If, if something major happens over there, we can't make up. We weren't even able to make up the 600,000 barrels a day that went offline when the attacks were hit last time. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's not a faucet. Yes, they, if the price went up to 70, 80 bucks, there would be a rush to get more wells into the ground and drill more wells or complete some of the un, complete some of the drilled but uncompleted wells in the Permian. There was, there's a lot. But that's, that's, that's not a, it's not a, that's not, hey, we'll have it up next week. It's not how it works. It's just not. You know, you're under the assumption there's 50 spare rigs laying around that can be brought to an area and pumping oil in a couple of days. It just doesn't work that way, folks. So, again, I still feel, and this is the way I felt for a while, that um, risks to oil aren't down, they're up. Right? Meaning the price of oil is going to rise. Um, 
it's just it's not a region of the world where they they don't just go okay bygone so let's sit down at a table and and work this out it's all it's any authoritarian regime any ever you can't show weakness which means you can't capitulate which means you can't give in you have to win you have to or you lose authority you use you you lose that what gives you your authoritative stance so it's it's just not and this is not a middle east thing it's the same thing in in the central america or anywhere russia china it's the same thing anywhere you have these type of regimes they can't back down so if iran finds out who did this they have to respond and then if they respond think of saudi arabia and they do something to saudi arabia saudi arabia has to respond and things just start to ratchet up unless we can blame some unaffiliated you know group in yemen who we've all decided is responsible for these attacks and you know they you know they do their own thing against them saudi arabia runs something against them and iran something against them and they can all wash their hands of it and walk away but if they start blaming each other that's a problem well for the price of oil it's good for our investment but it's 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 it means higher oil prices and the U.S. cannot make up the difference. Not that much, not that fast. Oil will go much higher. And the good news for that, I mean, like I said last week, you know, when oil hit 66 a couple weeks ago, when the solder refinery was hit, a shitload of oil was hedged next year's production. So even if you have a, a one-month spike into the 80s for whatever reason, oil companies will be rushing to hedge next year's production at 80 bucks. So no matter what happens after that to the price, if it drops back down to the 50s or low 60s, that oil is going to be selling 80 bucks a barrel. They got it hedged. So, and that gives them some sort of, you know, good view into next year's cash flows and earnings and things like that. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of scenarios that can happen, but I don't know. I just historically... The Middle East has had to intensify engagement um, before it de-escalates it, you know. Like, and and I think that's been seen here. It's like first there was you know the you know a couple of rogue guys in with little surface-to-air missile in rowboats were shooting at tankers, and a couple of tankers were detained and things like that. And and now it's now it's starting to intensify a little bit. So we'll see what happens. But I, I still think that if we're looking for a major swing in oil prices in the direction, I still think the risk is of one that goes much higher. Because um, it seems as though it's, what's it been about two weeks since? Uh, it seems like it's about every two weeks something happens now. And before it was happening, you know, once a month or once every three or four weeks. And now the intensity and the frequency is starting to pick up a little bit. So it's... It's just something to keep an eye on. And I do not think the current price of oil in any way reflects that risk of higher price, of, of, a, of a full-on conflict in the Middle East. I don't, it, it's not even close to um, reflecting that possibility. It's not even close. So you could get a, if something does happen, 
and people finally realize that, hey, 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 wait a minute. And, oh, my God, what do you mean? What do you mean the frackers can't just produce another million barrels of oil a day that just went off the market? We, we need that. Why can't frackers produce it? Because frackers are producing flat out right now. That's, that's, the, that's the misperception of this whole thing. Is like they are producing. I mean, they, they, they are locked in their price. It's, ended, it's coming to the end of the year. They're pumping every barrel they can. And when pipelines come in and it's cheaper to do, they're going to pump even more. They're going flat out. They can't add another million barrels a day. <laughs> it's just not there. It's not there. So that's where we are. I think I've kind of, I think I'm starting to repeat myself. So that was the, um, the last question was on oil. 49 minutes. I think I've spoken long enough. Um, I hope everybody has a great and fantastic weekend. If, if, if you are going to be in, um, if you are going to be in Boston on the 16th and are interested in investing in cannabis or are a cannabis entrepreneur who's looking for investors, uh, we're having a meetup in the Seaport area in Boston that night from 6 to 9. Um, you have to register beforehand for it. Uh, the link is on the website. There's a, there's a blog post, investor event. I'll put it back up at the top so people can see it. Um, if you're going to be around, go through the link in there. Sign up for it. I'd love to meet you. Um, have a chat. I've been to a couple of them. They're really well done. They're really good times. And um, some of the things that are happening are just amazing. Even aside from the simplistic things of opening up a dispensary, some of the technology that's going into this, is, it's, it's really cool stuff. Really cool. And some of the, the businesses that are involved in this stuff and some of the, the people involved in it, um, it's, really, it's really, really cool. And that, again, this is, it's aside from the, the flowers and aside from, you know, a dispensary or a grow facility, it's just the technology that's going into it and, and some other things like that are just, are just really staggering. So it's, it's really neat to, um, it's really neat to be a part of. So, um, so either send me an email, I'll send you the link or go to the website and click on the link and register yourself. And if you do register yourself, let me know, because I want to know, uh, I know there's a couple of you that are going. Um, but I want to know who's going to be there so we can, we can chat and hang out and get to know each other. So I hope everybody has a great, safe, and just fantastic weekend. And um, uh, best of luck to you.